This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. All right, I was just mugging for the camera there. (laughs) Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium, and this is The Conspiracy Show. I am Richard Serrett. Come on in. Find a peg by the door, hang up your cloak, grab a stool, come sit over here and warm yourself by the fire. Smoke them if you got them. You are among friends. Uh, Daniel Estelin is standing by. Daniel wrote the huge uh, bestseller, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. I'll tell you about a a documentary that he's uh, produced that's coming out very soon, a little bit later. Uh, and he has uh, come out with another one. He's done it again. This is going to send shockwaves uh, throughout the world, I'm sure. Uh, it's called Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering the Masses. And uh, we'll talk about that in just a few moments. Happy Hanukkah uh, to all of our uh, dear Jewish friends and listeners. And, uh, you know, this isn't just a, a Jewish holiday. It's, uh, it's something I think we should all get behind. I was reading uh, Jonathan Akon today, an article he wrote, uh, author of The Harbinger and the, uh, the Mystery of the Shemitah. And uh, Jonathan makes a a wonderful point in writing about Hanukkah. He says it's a holiday we should all be celebrating because Hanukkah is about resisting evil, fighting for good, standing up for what's good, what's right, Uh, just as the uh, the Maccabees did when they uh, refused to bow down to Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who defiled the temple and demanded that Jews bow down to him. Uh, Amen to that. Uh, Ian Robertson uh, is here behind the glass, twisting the knobs and dials. He's basically piloting this mothership. Uh, and on a, on a sad note, I hope I'm, I'm not uh, telling tales out of school, but Ian lost his dog on a Thursday. Uh, this was a 14-year-old uh, Border Collie Australian sheepdog dog mix. What was uh, your dog's name again, Ian? It was Kelty. Kelty? Kelty. Kelty. Yeah, he's a good little dude. He was a good little dude, yeah. And this was uh, this was Ian's uh, companion since Ian was like seven or eight because you're 21, 22 years old. So uh, a heavy loss uh, for Ian, but I know your dog was well-loved and cared for and had a great life, and uh, uh, it's always tough losing a pet, but uh, we're thinking about you, Ian. Thank you very much. Uh, Albert Vinzel, my story producer, is here running our Hangout on Air. And if you want to watch the show, live stream it on YouTube. Uh, you can go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. Let me spell the last name, S-Y-R-E-T-T, Richard Serrett. Click on the H-O-A link. That's at or near the top of the feed. And you are in. Uh, if you don't catch the live stream, you can go back and watch it later. Just go to our YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show. All right. To the main entree we go. Uh, let me crib here from the back of Daniel Estulin's latest book. The Tavistock Institute in Sussex, England, describes itself as a non-profit charity 
that applies social science to contemporary issues and problems. But this book posits that it is the world's center for mass brainwashing and social engineering activities. Daniel Estelin is an award-winning investigative journalist and best-selling author of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. Other books include Shadow Masters, Deconstructing WikiLeaks, Trans Evolution, and the novel The Octopus Deception. He's been featured on Jesse Ventura's Conspiracy Theory TV show and in the Alex Jones documentary Endgame, Blueprint for Global Enslavement. And Daniel has a new documentary on the Bilderberg Group scheduled for worldwide release very soon. Daniel Estulin, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. It's been ages. How are you? Yeah, Richard, good evening. No, actually, good morning on this side of the of the pond. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, great to have you back. It's been, uh, well, we, you and I, we talked on Skype uh, several weeks ago, but uh, I'm trying to remember the last time I we talked on the radio show, I may have been up the street at another station. That's right, many years ago. So are you are you in Europe full time now? Are you living? I'm in Europe full time. That's right. Yeah. Yes. I'm just getting uh, the documentary up and running, and that's going to be up uh, in the next couple of weeks or so. And uh, as soon as it's done, uh, we'll be ready to embark on a world tour. All right, Tavistock Institute. Fascinating uh, subject matter, and um, let's let's begin talking a little bit about the origin. When when was the Tavistock Institute? Uh, formed, I guess, and, and who were the people behind it? It was formed uh, in the, in the 1920s uh, founder, Dr. Hugh Crichton Miller's leadership, um, when it was called the Tavistock Clinic. And then uh, shortly after the Second World War, it became uh, um, a Rockefeller-controlled institution, turned into a Tavistock Institute for Human Relations, which is basically a psychological warfare arm of the British royal family, and it's located in a suburb of London, in uh, this area called Sussex, England. And uh, in the 1930s, the Tavistock Institute basically developed uh, this symbiotic relationship with the Frankfurt Institute for Social Research, which is a key research uh, institute also financed by the Rockefellers and uh, organized by people like Theo Adorno. And their collaboration led them to basically analyze the culture of a population from a neo-Freudian standpoint. Nazism just happened to have been one of its patients on a psychiatric couch. Well, um, is it true uh, that, um, well, Adolf Hitler uh, had a sister, I believe, who lived in Liverpool, and um, a sister or an aunt, I'm not sure, but you'll you'll, you'll, uh, sort this out for me, I'm sure, but it it is suggested that uh, Hitler may have spent some time at the Tavistock Institute, and I think it was his sister who reported that he would uh, sort of come back and forth between London and Liverpool, uh, and and his behavior was very odd. He stayed with her a while in Liverpool. Is that is that a true story? I, I don't I don't think so. I, I mean, I've heard that before, and I kind of looked into it. No, I didn't find any uh, any proof of why. What, what there is obviously is a lot of information on the on the Nazis, on on you know on Hitler, on the Nazi calls, on Carl Jung, you know, on this whole neo Freudian relationship, which is a very interesting you know uh, point to discuss if you never can go into it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, what is the connection between Carl Jung and, and, and Freud and, I guess, uh, the Tavistock Institute or, or even just brainwashing? Well, you know, one key neo-Freudian who became this overt supporter of the Nazis was the Swiss uh, psychoanalyst Carl Jung, whose friendship with Freud ended over the latter's refusal to see value in Gnostic mysticism. 
Freud, who was opposed to integrating mystical ideas into psychoanalysis, associated the the word mysticism with seances, voices from other worlds, noises, you know, apparitions, levitation, trances, prophecies, and so on and so forth. Now, Jung saw in Hitler the the apotheosis of Jung's own search for a kind of uh, pagan communion with the beyond, a search that began back in 1915 with Jung's colossal, you know, nervous breakdown. In his 1997 essay on the subject of Hitler and Jung, uh, Wolf, uh, um, uh, which one of the authorities on the subject, believes that there's this, the strongest possible connection between Jung's psychoanalytic theories, uh, which form one of the conceptual bases of New Age ideology today, and his fascination with Hitler. You see, uh, Richard, for Jung, was obsessed by the notion that the deepest reality, the greatest truth lay buried in the unconscious and the mystical, psychotic aspects of man's mind, as opposed to the rational, outward, scientific, Judeo-Christian view of the world. And that was the, the basis of Jung's decades-long search through himself, uh, attempting to find a pre-existing myth of or, or, or a mythic system which aptly illustrated his ideas about the human psychology of religion. And so he began with Gnosticism, then wanted to study astrology, and then uh, um, speculative alchemy as a kind of a, um, symbolic system. And uh, if you kind of analyze a lot of this uh, material, you'll realize that, that to Carl Jung, there's this deep uh, substratum of of consciousness that lies beneath the layers of mechanical instincts and the measurable phenomena of clinical psychology. A lot, uh, John called it the collective unconscious. I'm sure everybody's familiar with that phrase, and, sure. and that's where you know that Cook's uh, analysis and background comes from. And and you know, and in turn, these images, which you know he so often described as you know these religious rituals and so on and so forth, this uh, pattern or, or matrix underlying the observed universe, a kind of of grid of connections linking events according to a system we can only barely perceive are manipulated by the unseen hand of the brainwashers of the Tavistic Institute and also Frankfurt uh, School and people like uh, Theodore Norton. The the coat of arms for the Tavistock Institute is kind of uh, not kind of it's very interesting. We we see uh, three owls and a uh, a, a sheep. Uh, that's being sort of suspended by some kind of a, uh, a, a harness around its midsection. Uh, what, what, is the, uh, what is the meaning behind this, this coat of arms for the Tavistock Institute? It's actually the coat of arms that you're talking about on the cover of the book. It's uh, my publisher's idea, Chris Milligan. Owl, of course, represents wisdom in, 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 in mythology and, you know, in ancient religions. And, uh, and so the idea is that, you know, it's also something, you know, keeps watch at night. And so the idea of, you know, using the coat of arms and, and, uh, and an owl is, you know, to project strength, as so many ancient cultures did uh, throughout centuries. Uh, of course, then the owl is um, also uh, a prominent symbol at the, um, uh, I guess, the playground of the elites in uh, in, in California. That's right. Exactly. You know, Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove, yes. Jones, of all people, infiltrated them once. I think it was like 10 years ago or something like that. All right. Um, what is the... Um, the the mission statement or the uh, intended objective, not the, the 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 stated one, not the the one for public consumption, but what is what is do you believe the the secret uh, mission of the Tavistock Institute? What are they trying to do? What's their goal? 
Uh, you know, if you look at it, the purpose of these, uh, you know, behavior modifications, it's literally, you know, to bring about forced change to our way of life without our agreement and without ever realizing of what is happening to us. The ultimate goal being the, you know, this complete extirpation of mankind's inner sense of identity, the, the tearing out of man's of mankind's innermost soul and the placement in the vacant space of an artificial synthetic pseudo soul, but in order to you know in order to change mankind's behavior away from the industrial production to spiritualism, and also to bring us willful into the world of post-industrial era of zero growth and zero progress, one must force first a change in mankind's you know self-image, its fundamental conception of what we are as people, and so thus the image of man appropriate to that new era must be sought synthesized and then wired into mankind's brain. And this is something that, you know, these people have been after since the, you know, the, the, the creation of Tannisto Clinic back in, uh, you know, at the end of the, of the First World War and, you know, uh, really taken off with Rockefeller's uh, uh, patronage uh, beginning in 1947, right at the end of the Second World War, when Tannisto Clinic turned into Tannisto Institute for Human Relations. Um. Now, when you say take us back to a, a, a period of sort of zero growth, zero development, it sounds like what you're saying or describing is a return to a feudal age. Is that a fair assessment? Well, you know, again, if you kind of look at it, uh, progress and development of society is directly proportional to population density. Uh, so from the point of view of the elite, if you're looking at the planet Earth, which is a small planet with limited natural resources and an ever-growing population base, so if you're the elite, you don't need more people on planet Earth. So the idea of, of deindustrialization, zero growth, demand destruction, uh, plays into their hands because, again, progress and development of society is directly proportional to population density. So there's more people, more growth, uh, more wealth, uh, which means you're going to have a you know, much bigger population base. And on a planet with limited natural resources, you don't need that. So the elite, what they're trying to do is deindustrialize the world and bring this, you know, the concept of, of zero growth, uh, population reduction, deindustrialization. We have a you know, prototype for that in the United States called Detroit. Very true. Listen, we got to take a time out, uh, Daniel. We will come back. Tavistock Institute, uh, you might even call it the think tank for the New World Order. Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. All righty. Welcome back. Daniel Estelin is with us, the author of Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering, the Masses. And, of course, you'll remember uh, his other book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, and a documentary is uh, due out anytime soon, and uh, you'll be able to see it. We'll tell you details uh, on that as well. All right, back to the Tavistock Institute. Um, we were talking about its its uh, unstated objective. Would it be fair to say uh, that they are trying to condition uh, humanity into accepting author- authoritarian rule? Would that be a fair assessment? Well, absolutely. It's uh, if you kind of look at behavior modification, you can go, you know, to the first examples of this authoritarian rule back to the 1940s, which was the turning point for the, you know, Rockefeller strategy of behavior modification, brainwashing, <laughs> co-determination, co-participation, you know, corporativism for the takeover of the United States, and also world labor movement. And uh, basically, as the war wound down. Rockefeller changed the psychology of the workers in ways essential to the way that, you know, he would rule the United States organized labor movement from uh, from then on. And one of the key individuals, if you're actually talking about the uh, 
um, the, the people who had uh, such a large role in organizing this behavior modification was a psychologist by the name of Kurt Lewin. Now, Lewin was the, the father of group dynamics, and one of uh, John Rowling Reese, who is the founder of Tavistock Clinic, uh, first cadre recruits who began his career at Cornell University, where he basically worked on a systematic series of studies of the effect of social pressure on the eating habits of children. Now, this Kurt Lewin uh, character, he came to the United States in 1933, he was a refugee from Nazi Germany. So Lewin, like many other German intellectuals, was literally forced out of Germany, not because of any uh, basic political differences with us, you know, but as a sacrifice to Hitler's divide-and-conquer anti-Semitism. And so Lewin, in fact, is noted for his uh, refinement of the Nazi-formulated leaderless group technique into a sophisticated tool of counterintelligence. Now, Lewin's uh, most significant proposal, which had made during the whole period of World War II and its immediate aftermath, was his conception of fascism with a democratic face. It's something you see right now in the United States. The common uh, psychopathological feature of all fascist demand is infantilism, who defines himself by his um, attempts to impose the principle of the autonomous extended family and to block out the reality of, of the outer world. So, for example, you know, nationalism, you could call it mother country, uh, racialism, that would be mother, language group, that would be mother tongue, cultural affinity group, that would be uh, family traditions, community, that would be extended family and also neighborhoods. In other words, um, individuals uh, working with, you know, these kind of people such as uh, John Ronald Reese and, and Carl Lewin, uh, you're looking at the different set of brainwashing tactics uh, which they use to impose their will on the rest of society. Well, when we think of brainwashing, uh, you know, we think automatically of, of uh, you know, Hitler as propaganda minister, Joseph uh, Goebbels, uh, Goebbels, and, uh, uh, you know, repeat the uh, the lie often enough and uh, you know repetition is essential uh, repeated affirmation um, other propaganda techniques brainwashing techniques of course many of those perfected by by the Nazis um, I mean were those techniques perfected at Tavistock and was was someone like a, a, a Goebbels was he receiving instructions from the Tavistock not so much so, but, you know, certainly I think Tavistock actually learned a lot more from the Nazis than the Nazis did from Tavistock. You know, and, and the first you know, case of, of how this brainwashing really works was, was radio. In, in the case of Nazi, Nazi Germany, coming across the radio, you know, think about it. Yet millions, you know, millions of homes was the voice of one man, Adolf Hitler. And the fact that all of Germany was hearing his voice at the same time gave um, an enhanced power to the message. So the listener was literally part of this mass experience, taking it all in from the emotionally non-thinking set of reference points. So Hitler's speeches were some of the first mass media events in history, as carefully staged as any event in, in modern history. So both Tavistock and also Frankfurt School paid very close attention to Nazi propaganda techniques which they willingly incorporated into their research. And the aim of this project, as stated by Theodore Adorno's introduction to the sociology of music, was to program a mass culture as a form of um, extensive social control that would steadily degrade its consumers. 
and the application of their research into human behavior was set to launch a decade later in this major irreversible cultural revolution in America. And so basically the brainwashers concluded that uh, mass media events had caused people to suspend their belief in reality. And the first you know, shot of that was, again, you know, via radio in, in, in Nazi Germany. And when you suspend this belief in reality, they basically had, in fact, been willing to accept uncritically things being said, which if they had, you know, heard in another context, they would probably, you know, most likely have rejected. Now, you know, think back to today. How insane are some of the things that we have, you know, been told by our leaders? Weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, Iranian mullahs allegedly threatening, you know, the security of the United States, Libyan, you know, leader Muammar Gaddafi supplying his troops with Viagra in order to rape women, you know, participating in the rebellion, Osama bin Laden's death. You know, it, you know, there's just so many of these, and you kind of, you know, look at it and think about it, and you say to yourself, you know, how, how brain dead are these people to actually accept some of these explanations? Well, what basically that happened was, is that during the Second World War, uh, this this uh, individual by the name of Bruno Bethelheim, who's a you know neo Freudian, he published this psychological analysis of the Nazi period at the behest of the network of brainwashers associated with the Tavistock Institute. So this Bethelheim described how under extreme doubt and terror, the individual will regress to an increasingly more infantile state. And in that condition, the inmates of the Nazi concentration camps literally started to mirror the personalities and mannerisms of their oppressors, the SS guards. And as this widely circulated version of his work, the informed heart, it was called, he indicated that, you know, life outside the concentration camps mirrored the psychological disintegration taking place inside. In other words, all German citizens were becoming uh, more infantile, less able to act as reasonable, reasonable adults. And that's where this whole thing about the, you know, the good German comes from. In other words, the good German had to be unseen and also dumb. It is one thing to you know, behave like a child because one is a child. It is quite another thing to be an adult and have to force oneself to assume childish behavior. It was not just you know, coercion by others into this helpless dependency. It was also the clean splitting of the personality, which Navistock achieved later, you know, with, with, with you know, basing their analysis and research in what was done in Nazi Germany. In other words, you know, men's anxiety, his wish to protect life, forced him to relinquish what was ultimately his best chance of survival. In other words, his ability to react and make appropriate decisions. And these, of course, needless to say, or you know, began in Nazi Germany as experiments. How uh, important was the medium of radio um, uh, in terms of the success of, of, of Hitler. I, I'm just trying to imagine how, what, what Hitler may have been able to accomplish had he had television at his disposal. I, you know, I think we know what Hitler would have accomplished had he had television. We see today, you know, in all over the world, the dynamic down of society, which is the direct, you know, result of everything that we've learned from, you know, Tavistock's uh, endless experiences and, and uh, uh, over the past, uh, you know, six decades or so. I want to move ahead and I want to talk about uh, uh, the 1960s and the British invasion, uh, which, as it turns out, may have been just that, the British invasion. 
when we're talking about uh, these, uh, you know, the Mercy Beat and the arrival on America's shores of, of the Beatles and later the Rolling Stones and the Who and um, the Animals and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and and um, media scientist Nelson Thal, who joins us on the program quite frequently, in an episode on my TV show, we talked about the assassination of John Lennon, and he brought up the Tavistock Institute uh, and um, suggested that the Beatles may have been in large measure a psychological warfare experiment created by the Tavistock Institute. Uh, what, what say you? Um, you know, I don't doubt it. I mean, there's just a lot of material out there. If you kind of look at the whole 60s period, look at the, you know, the whole meaning of counterculture, you know, you could talk about British invasion, you could talk about the undeclared cultural war against America's youth, which, you know, began in earnest in 1967, when Tavistock began using open um, air rock concerts to attract over four, I think almost five, actually, million young people to so-called festivals. And, you know, un un unknown to most people, the, the youth became the victims of this planned wide-scale drug experimentation. You know, we're talking about the hustleogenic drugs, uh, such as, you know, STP, uh, PCPs, MDAs, DMTs, you know, Buells promoted LSD, and also, you know, Blue Micro Dot LSD-25. You know, all these drugs were freely distributed at these concerts, and before long, you had over 50 million of these attendees between the ages of 10 and 25 years old, you know, who returned home to become the messengers and promoters of this new drug culture, or later, you know, became known as the New Age. And so what happens with the uh, hallucinogenic drugs, they're, you know, psychomimetics, meaning that they mimic certain aspects of psychosis. And so, so through the use of these uh, hallucinogenic drugs, one can literally induce temporary symptoms of psychosis and schizophrenia. And so most users of these drugs at the time experienced whole personality changes causing total alterations of the senses. And so the intention of the LSD drug scene and the controlled environment it represented, it wasn't accidental, Richard, but completely intentional. And so the Tavistock Institute had extensively uh, studied the relationship between the brain and behavior caused by these drugs. And later on, the knowledge gleaned from the research was channeled into marketing MTV and radio stations through, you know, classic oldies, songs from 15 to 25 years ago, which are targeted, you know, at the adult population. And so what several Tavistock studies showed that a song or a piece of music associated with one's childhood, one heard later in life, could call forth memories and associations of that earlier period. And so you had literally this encoded memories of popular music in the listener recalled when he or she heard the same piece of music from like 25 years ago. And, you know, kind of, you know, think back to, you know, anytime you hear something from like, you know, the 1980s, you know, and then you kind of go back and, you know, think how you feel. Or imagine if you're on drugs, that whole experience will be reproduced and again and again. So these memories basically triggered this an emotional drug flashback that set off an infantile emotional state that brought the listener back to that time in which he or she literally experienced either an identity, you know, or, or crisis or some kind of, you know, uh, situation where it was mirroring the drug, the drug reaction itself. And if you kind of look, you know, what you're talking about, the, you know, the 60s and the music, uh, you know, let's go back to the Monterey pop. 
which was the first commercial American rock festival, officially dubbed the first annual Monterey International Pop Festival, which was held in June 1967, you know, two years before Woodstock, when over 200,000 young people gathered in and around the Monterey Country Fairgrounds in Northern California for a three-day celebration, which is basically, you know, celebration, you know, classified as psychedelics, you know, using, you know, LSD and everything else. Now, what people don't understand is that one of the organizers of the Monterey Festival was John Phillips, the member of the Mamas and the Papas Rock Group, and also the former press agent for the Beatles. And so Phillips was closely linked with Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate, Mama Cass, uh, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, and also many other Hollywood celebrities who in turn were linked to the Charles Manson's family. And what's interesting, what I discovered in my research... I'm just going to get you to... Daniel, excuse me. I'm going to get you to hold on. Sorry, Daniel, I need you to hold on if you could. We're just coming into a break. My apologies. We'll we'll pick up on Monterey uh, and John Phillips and the connection uh, with Polanski and and, uh, Charles Manson and so much more. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Daniel Estelin stays with us. And the new book is Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering the Masses... And uh, we were talking about the Monterey Pop Festival 1967 and uh, sort of a, a way of uh, introducing LSD into the uh, American subculture. And you were talking about some of the participants, John Phillips from the uh, Mamas and the Papas. Uh, he was uh, associated in some capacity with uh, film director Roman Polanski and, of, and uh, Sharon Tate, his wife, who was, of course, uh, murdered by uh, Charlie Manson's family. Um, so pick it up from there, uh, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, all these characters, uh, how they all kind of intertwine, you know, with, with these uh, social experiments and also Tavis. Again, Mama Cass and John Phillips, you know, they were connected to the Manson family through the Frost of Church of the Final Judgment, which was an offshoot of the Church of Scientology founded in England in the mid-1960s by a couple of former Scientologists, Robert and uh, Marianne de Grimston, now, formed sometime in 63-64, the Process Church of the Final Judgment, it was a kind of a mixture of reincarnation, existentialism, an attempt to, uh, you know, merge the worship of Jehovah Lucifer, and also a bit of this, you know, neo-Nazi flavor. It is significant, Richard, that the process's legal work was handled by an elite Wall Street law firm, Morrison McVean, whose main backer was American Family Foundation, who used... Uh, intelligence-connected mind-control experts such as, you know, uh, LSD researcher Dr. Louis Jolius West to orchestrate cult, anti-cult hysteria, which is another, you know, part of Tavistock research. Uh, so you basically, you know, like Hegelian dialectic, you control both sides of the equation. So this, you know, this LSD researcher, Dr. West, he was a major participant in the CIA's McCultra, which came out of Tavistock Institute's studies of Nazi social control techniques. You know, people with only passing knowledge of the Manson case usually don't realize that the Beach Boys recorded one of Manson's songs and released it as the uh, B-side of their cover of the old, you know, Earl Solhickey 1958 hit Bluebirds Over the Mountain, a song about about, uh, lost love. Now, the title of the song was suggestive of the CIA mind control operation, which which was called Bluebird, which was a program for 
um, exploring the uses of hypnosis and other means to protect the recently created CIA and its personnel from enemy uh, psychic penetration, which was called Bluebird. So the question that I ask in the book is, you know, is there a reason why Manson's song was on the flip side of the Bluebird cover of the CIA's Bluebird escaped? And was Manson a Bluebird, in other words, a mind control subject gonna mock? These are some of the things, you know, that are fascinating when, you know, when you actually go down the rabbit hole, you know, Richard, there's no end to it. But uh, these are certainly some of the uh, links which, uh, you know, I address and pursue in my book on the Tavistock Institute. Uh, Timothy Leary's LSD experiments at Harvard University, is there a connection there with the Tavistock? Well, absolutely. I mean, all of these people were related. And again, you know, you go back to the open-air concerts, you know, you go to Woodstock Music and Art Fair, you know, which Time Magazine labeled, you know, the Aquarian Festival and history's, you know, largest happening. And basically in the process, Woodstock, uh, you know, and Timothy Leary, you know, they became part of this cultural lexicon. And, you know, it, you know, if you kind of look at, you know, at, at, at the, uh, the meaning itself of the you know, Aquarian Conspiracy or the Aquarian Festival, it was, you know, publicists were very careful in choosing the, you know, the terminology Aquarium. Because if you kind of, you know, according to astronomers, the ages progress in, you know, in retrograde motion going in, in the opposite direction as the sun, which moves from the age of Aquarius into the age of the feces into the age of Aries and so forth. And so if you kind of follow the astrological beliefs, the age of pieces, which is, you know, an artifact of the uh, procession of the equinoxes, is the time span of about, you know, 200 B.C. until the current day, which is approximately every 2,160 years. You know, the, the procession of the equinoxes appears to rotate the spring equinox from one constellation to another. So we appear, you know, to be, you know, ending this age of pieces and beginning of the age of Aquarius and moving into this age of Aquarius, you know, signifies that the age of pieces, which is the age of Christ, has literally come to an end. And again, if you kind of, you know, go to Woodstock, go to, you know, to uh, see who put it together, who orchestrated, who financed it, you clearly see the hand of all these, you know, very private secret organizations, such as the, you know, the, uh, a Tavistock Clinic, the Rockefellers, et cetera, et cetera. As well as you can also look at, uh, you know, some of the uh, uh, big uh, uh, record publishers such as, you know, EMI, which is, uh, uh, electric, you know, Electric Music Industries, which everybody knows, but people don't know when you're talking about EMI, is that uh, a man who actually was credited with Woodstock's creation was a man by the name of Artie Kornfeld, which was the director of Capitol Records, which is, you know, was owned at the time by EMI. And EMI, aside from being a music producer, uh, is also one of Britain's largest producers of military electronics and a key member of Britain's military intelligence establishment as a kind of military contractor to the British War Office. So if you kind of, you know, look at this again, you have the, the British Royal Family, you have the Crown, the Tavistock Institute, which is, you know, British through and through, all behind all of these you know, uh, uh, fads and, 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 you know, and... Uh, and uh, well, they've got their tentacles you know, everywhere. They have their tentacles everywhere. Daniel, stay, uh, stay tuned. We will uh, pick it up on the other side. Tavistock Institute, social engineering the masses. And uh, Daniel has your antidote right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. 
Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your taxi, camper, RV, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. I'm Richard Serrett, and this is The Conspiracy Show. Happy Hanukkah, and welcome to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio. AM 740, 96.7 FM here in Toronto. A big hearty how-do uh, to those listening in on one of our affiliates, the uh, podcasts, of course, available at iTunes, Stitch Radio, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com, and those listening in on the wonderful retro Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both free and available through Google Play and iTunes. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is standing by. We're going to talk about Christmas miracles and the lives of the saints in just a few moments. I just wanted to mention... Uh, that I was screening uh, some of our new episodes for Season 4 of the Conspiracy Show uh, TV program coming across uh, Canada on Vision TV. And uh, thanks to Moses Neimer for exec producing. Uh, There's an episode I just saw the other night, uh, now completed, and um, it's on pterodactyls. And these are the the, uh, flying... Uh, dinosaurs, if you will, thought to be extinct for some 40, 50 million years, some of them with wingspans uh, on the order of 21 feet. And um, there have been sightings of these creatures, alleged sightings, in remote places like Papua New Guinea, where the uh, the locals there refer to them as ropen, R-O-P-E-N, ropen, And these uh, flying lizards, as I say, enormous uh, wingspans, and um, they've been seen eating human corpses, digging them up in graveyards. Uh, Anyway, that's one of the episodes uh, that's coming at you in Season 4. And then you'll also see episodes on the JFK assassination, uh, the global warming hoax, fluoride, GMOs, and Ouija boards, and in fact, our, uh, our our guest Rosemary is featured in that episode on Ouija boards. Uh, incidentally, seasons one, two, and three of the television program, The Conspiracy Show, now available in the United States on Amazon.com and on Hulu. All right, let's get down to business, shall we? Uh, let's face it, there is a lot of bad news uh, coming your way from this on this program. A lot of a political subterfuge, murder, most foul conspiracies, the machinations of globalists hell-bent on enslaving humanity, strange and frightening uh, paranormal activity. Uh, but tonight, as we head on into the Christmas season, I thought something more spiritually uplifting might be in order. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a frequent guest on the program. She's a regular. She's uh, with us every month, once a month, and usually pressed into service to discuss her more recent paranormal investigations. Uh, But she's also quite the authority on the lives of the saints venerated in the Christian faith. And I thought, well, this is a pretty good time to talk about the saints and some of the miracles associated with them. Rosemary is a leading expert in the metaphysical and paranormal fields with more than 60 books. I think it's closer to 70 now published on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, metaphysical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias and reference works. 
Her work is translated into 15 languages. Her current work focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences, problem hauntings, spirit and entity attachments, the afterlife, and spirit communications, psychic skills, dream work for well-being, spiritual growth and development, angels, past and parallel lives, an investigation of unusual paranormal activity. She's worked full-time in the field since 1983, and she's done groundbreaking research on shadow people and the jinn, entities who are involved in different kinds of paranormal activities and problems. She investigates and consults in cases of persistent negative hauntings in which individuals are under apparent attack by supernatural forces. But tonight... We're going to dial it back a few years and talk about one of those major encyclopedic works. It's called The Encyclopedia of Saints. Now, it is available as a beautiful hardcover book, and you can, um, you can get that. It's available at her website, visionaryliving.com. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. How are you? Hi, Richard. Well, I'm enjoying the holidays at home. It was a real busy year. I was on the road a lot and uh, finally wound things up last month. Now we're uh, enjoying spending uh, the holidays here at home and relaxing as much as I can relax. <laughs> All right. Well, yes, you deserve it. Time to put up your uh, your feet. Um, and I just, I, again, I quickly want to mention the um, the Encyclopedia of Saints it's a, nobody publishes in hardcover anymore, so good on you. I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful uh, book. I happen to have my own copy at home on my, uh, my bookshelf. Uh, I'm, and this book, I think it's going on uh, uh, for about $80 at Amazon, and, and you've got it on your website for about $40. Is that right? I do, yes. I run specials on my encyclopedias uh, at the end of the year and at the start of the year. And um, I... Uh, I think it's a good thing to do because these books are expensive and uh, I'm able to um, give people a big discount uh, while I have a limited number of copies. Uh, The encyclopedias were all done by the same publisher. Um, Well, I have several uh, reference works that were not, but uh, most of my encyclopedias were done by a single publisher that did a beautiful job on them uh, with the covers and the layout, hardcover and paperback. And they have kept them in print. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's for many authors, it's just getting harder and harder to get anything published, let alone published in hardcover. And uh, so it's, uh, it's very nice for a reference work like this. I want to start off with a saint recently beatified, uh, and that is Frere Andre, uh, just down the 401 east of here in good old Montreal. And um, uh, he was, well, when was he beatified? It's just in the last couple of years, isn't it? Um, it was fairly recently. It was 19, uh, well, 1987. Oh, okay, so not too, uh, but, yeah. Um, uh, that's fairly recent. Um, fewer and fewer saints have been beatified and canonized over the years, although there, uh, there were, uh, like, a lot of canonizations um, in the 1990s especially in third world countries. But uh, I had some personal experiences involving um, Brother Andre, uh, which were quite unexpected. And uh, I really think that he's greatly overlooked. 
Uh, he probably really ought to be canonized. But the process of canonization is, is very strict these days, and um, he does at least qualify uh, to be um, beatified. Uh, he was a doorman, and uh, he was sickly from birth. Uh, he was born near Montreal. Uh, his father was a carpenter. Uh, they didn't think that he was even going to live past infancy, and he did struggle with ill health most of his life, and he became a remarkable healer. Now, he wanted to uh, dedicate his life to religion, and he was poorly educated, and he, uh, they didn't want him. Uh, the Congregation of the Holy Cross is um, uh, what he wanted to join, and uh, they didn't want him, but he was very persistent, and so they finally let him in as a doorman. And uh, he would go out on his own, on his own time, usually at night, to minister to people who were ill and many miraculous healings were credited to him, that um, he could heal by touch, he could heal by word, uh, in the manner of Jesus, telling people uh, that they were healed and they would be healed. Sometimes he rubbed holy oil on them, and that would heal them. And he gained such a reputation. He became uh, known as the Wonder Worker of Mount uh, Royal, and uh, he became such a sensation that it actually worried his superiors. And uh, this happens over and over again in the lives of extraordinary saints when they develop um, a cult of popularity. Um, the church becomes very worried that this is going to be an ego thing. They don't want um, cults to develop around uh, personalities. And uh, they've even gone to lengths to squelch that. Uh, and uh, so he was not really encouraged much to do his healing, uh, but he became increasingly popular anyway. And it was through, uh, I think, his, his sheer persistence and the numbers of miraculous healings that were credited to him that uh, he achieved something really remarkable in Montreal, which was the building of the Oratory of St. Joseph, his patron saint. He credited everything that he was able to do to St. Joseph. And uh, this oratory is a spectacular building, and uh, people come there from all over the world to pray, and especially for healing, because Frere André is buried there inside the oratory. Right there on Mount Royal, yeah. I mean, this, people. I mean, this is a major uh, tourist attraction. Something like what is it? Two million people uh, flock there every year. Two to three million people every year from all over the world, and uh, he's buried in a black granite tomb. It's called the Black Tomb, and uh, pilgrims come to pray at the tomb and to touch the tomb. Uh, now, the saints are considered intercessors, that they uh, mediate between uh, the living and the divine, and they are believed to, uh, to hold special powers uh, of healing and uh, to be able to have prayers uh, realized. You know, they're like angels carry prayers to the divine. And so people pray uh, to Brother Andre for healing. And uh, I had a mystical experience there some years ago. I was in Montreal for a conference, to speak at a conference, and um, one of the other speakers, who is PMH Atwater, uh, one of the leading world experts on near-death experience, um, asked me if I would like to join her and uh, several other presenters 
to take a, a side trip to the oratory, and I had never heard of Brother Andre. I was completely unfamiliar with the oratory, and uh, it was my very first trip to Montreal, in fact. And uh, so I went out of curiosity. Uh, she told me a little bit about it, and uh, I'm always up for adventure, and this is right up my alley. So of course I wanted to go. And this was on a Sunday morning. Rosemary, so I'm going to get very busy. I'm going to get you to stop right there, and we'll hold on to this, and we'll okay. pick it up on the other side. Rosemary Ellen Guiley's mystical experience at St. Joseph's Oratory on Mount Royal when she went to visit the tomb of Brother Andre. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show as we discuss the mystical lives of the saints. Stay with us. Welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Her website, visionaryliving.com. Visionaryliving.com. We're talking about... Uh, miracles of the saints, and you were in St. Joseph's Oratory on Mount Royal, Montreal, visiting the tomb of uh, Brother Andre, uh, who was beatified back in 1987, and um, uh, two million people flocked to, to his tomb every year, and his heart is uh, in, a, uh, in a see-through uh, case. Now, is that in, also located in the um, oratory, or is that somewhere else? It is in the oratory. It's not in the same location as uh, as his tomb. And I did see his heart. Um, the relics of the saints are uh, considered to be uh, kind of talismanic in uh, power, uh, that they also um, have uh, the ability to connect you to the intercessory power of the saint. But nothing rivals the black tomb uh, in the oratory of St. Joseph. And uh, on this particular Sunday morning, I joined a very long line of pilgrims um, waiting to touch the tomb, and I had absolutely no expectations. I was just there to pay my respects. The tomb is, uh, is in a rather large room that the walls are covered with crutches and canes uh, that um, were just dropped and abandoned uh, on the spot by people that he healed. And uh, it's a very powerful place. The energy there is is uh, quite powerful to be in. But I touched the tomb, and as soon as I did, um, I felt this energy pour through me, and it was like uh, being swept up into a fiery presence, uh, almost like a rapture, uh, where it was something that just started happening, and I felt that I was in the presence of some intense spiritual energy, and it was very, uh, it was like fire, it was divine fire, and I felt that it was literally burning away impurities in me. It was um, an amazing experience, and it lasted as long as I had my hands on the tomb. Uh, I felt that literally I was being pulled up into uh, the presence of God, and uh, it really shook me up. Um, mystical experiences will often bring people to tears, and that's what happened to me. I was uh, so overtaken with this energy that um, when I left uh, the tomb, and I really didn't want to leave, but there were so many people pressing behind me, of course, that I had to, um, after a few minutes, leave. And I went into a chapel, and uh, I was teary and very emotional and quite overtaken with this experience. I felt that I had had an experience of being very 
uh, very close to divine fire. And I didn't feel that I had been like completely purified or, uh, as I called it in my uh, my uh, testimony of it, anointed or appointed in any way. But it was a demonstration to me of the intercessory power of the saints uh, to uh, lift people up to a higher state of consciousness. And uh, that's one of the things that the communion of saints offers to people is um, not only this intercessory power, but uh, they do serve as a model to people. Some of them did lead very strange and very extreme lives, but many of them were dedicated to uh, lifting up humanity, to educating the poor, uh, helping the sick, uh, reforming social order, um, spreading, uh, of course, the, the word of the church, um, uh, spiritualizing uh, people. But um, they they served as models uh, of um, behavior and uh, spirituality to many people. They still do today. So um, this experience has really stayed with me over the years, and I became quite fascinated by Brother Andre. I wanted to know more about him, so uh, I bought several books uh, about him, read up on him uh, and his life. Uh, he was a very modest man. Most of the saints were very humble. Since that first experience, I have been back to the oratory several times. And, of course, I've wanted that experience again. And this is often the case when people have spontaneous, uh, intense uh, spiritual experiences. They would like a repeat of it. You never do get a repeat of these experiences because it served its purpose. I've had other good experiences and very spiritual experiences there in the oratory, but nothing exactly the same. Was it, was uh, the it that The ex- oratory is uh, said to have many power spots in it uh, that are like, um, uh, they're likened to uh, vortexes of spiritual energy that um, can magnify in people if you spend time in certain parts of the oratory uh, praying, for example, uh, you're said to be bathed in these energies. So it's really a remarkable place and um, well worth the visit if you're in the vicinity of it. Um, Brother Andre really persisted in getting this oratory built. This was something he had to really convince his superiors. It was a good idea. Uh, he uh, was instrumental in raising the money for it. And it's a magnificent place to visit. Was that experience what set you on your course to want to write this this encyclopedia, this encyclopedic work on saints? I had already been interested in the saints. Uh, I'm not Catholic. I grew up Methodist. But I've always been interested in the saints and um, this intermediary uh, position they have between uh, the living and, and the divine. And uh, it did... Um, give me a lot of incentive to go into uh, studying the saints more. And uh, it was shortly after this that uh, I began work on the Encyclopedia of Saints. And working on the Encyclopedia was an intense experience for me, too, because uh, for a long period of time I was immersed in the lives of the saints and their trials uh, their martyrdoms, their miracles, uh, their failures, their accomplishments. And um, 
I felt very changed by that. Uh, I did a second work called uh, The Quotable Saint, which is a, a compilation of um, quotations from the saint, the wisdom of the saints on various aspects of life. And uh, that also was an intense experience because I read uh, several hundred um, works by the saints, uh, their letters, their sermons, uh, their uh, books, their treatises, uh, on um, their theories uh, about uh, the divine, their uh, their prayer life, their interior life, their experiences, and uh, I, I felt very changed by that too. I haven't taken on very many topics that have personally changed me so much as being involved with the saints. Just back to, to Brother Andre for a moment, and then we'll move on to um, uh, some other uh, saints, including Januarius, uh, and we're, we're familiar with his story because of the liquefied, uh, um, his, 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 his congealed blood liquefies several times every year. But I wanted to mention Brother Andre's heart again. And are you familiar with the story of how his heart was stolen from the oratory by thieves? This is going back almost 40 years, I think. Oh, I did hear that story, but I have forgotten the details of it, yes. I, I don't have many either, except that it, I know it was stolen, um, and and um, they broke into the, the locked room where the heart was kept, and they, they held it for ransom. They wanted $50,000, and the church refused to pay. Um, but I'm not sure exactly, you know, how they got the heart back or, or, or uh, who, you know, whether they caught the people responsible. But that's just kind of an interesting little uh, chapter. Um, talk to me about, uh, is it Januarius? Jan- uh, yes, Januarius. Um, I wanted to mention this saint because um, is the relic, the blood relic of this saint is one of the oddest on record. And uh, St. Januarius was a martyred bishop. Um, very little is known about his life. He lived in the 4th century. And uh, with the saints, uh, especially the older saints, uh, where there are very few records, uh, it's oral stories that have been passed on down. They become part of the hagiographies. There's a lot of legend and sometimes embellishment that gets mixed in with their stories. But uh, nonetheless, um, what we seem to know about Januarius is that he was martyred, he was beheaded uh, during uh, some of the persecutions of Christians in the early centuries. And uh, so his relics were buried um, in a town called Marciano near Naples. And uh, then his body was taken to Naples and was put into a catacomb. And supposedly, uh, two vials of blood were collected uh, from his martyrdom when he was beheaded, and that they uh, became a part of his bones, and there's also his skull that's preserved as a relic. And um, as has been common throughout history, and still is today, uh, saint relics are often put on tour. Uh, so that the faith they can be venerated by the faithful, and and they become um, again these sort of um, catalysts uh, for people to have uh, miraculous experiences, and there are healings attributed just to relics of the saints. But uh, anyway, um, this uh, blood has become um, very strange in behavior, and uh, this has gone on for centuries. That uh, 
when uh, feasts have been celebrated honoring Januarius and the relics are brought out for a public uh, display, um, these vials of blood, uh, which have been dried for centuries, start to liquefy. And uh, they bubble and froth and uh, change color and change um, consistency. And the first such miracle was reported in 1389. So this has been going on for centuries. And uh, these vials now are hermetically sealed, so nobody's able to, uh, you know, the church does not allow anyone to break the hermetic seal to take the blood out to test it. But it, it is on public. You can see the, the blood change consistency uh, in, in their vials. And uh, so there are these now very elaborate ceremonies where uh, the vials are brought out and uh, people expect to see this miracle of the liquefaction. And um, there are uh, women who are called the ants, uh, the ants of Januarius, uh, you know, very devout followers of the saint. And they begin shouting and screaming for the liquefaction to take place. So it gets to be a very intense emotional ceremony. And there are three days, from what I understand, uh, that the blood will liquefy. One is the first Sunday in May, which commemorates the translation of the relics to Naples. The second is September 19th, the feast day of the saint. And then December 16th, which is coming up, the commemoration of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 1631. And at that point... um, the blood has liquefied for 30 days, uh, which is an extraordinarily long time. And this now, happens every year? Um, this happens every year without fail? Well, there have been times when the blood has not liquefied, and that is taken uh, as a very bad omen. Uh, for example, there was a case in, um, in uh, May of 1976. Uh, the blood did not change at all, and Naples was hit by an earthquake. And uh, there have been other times when the blood has not liquefied and then something bad has happened, like uh, some um, disaster or uh, an epidemic or um, in centuries past famine, you know, that sort of thing. So um, people expect this to happen. It's, it's considered to be, you know, part of the welfare of the area. Uh, now, Individuals who have attempted to explain this liquefaction, um, there may even be a paranormal component to this, because uh, we have this pitched emotion, intense, focused, pitched emotion, and then we have the ants of Januarius who set up this chanting and shouting and screaming uh, for the blood to liquefy, and it has been hypothesized that there might be a psychokinetic effect from the living on this, that the living project this intense energy which causes the blood to change in constitution. And I think there is something to that argument. Uh, there, uh, and I'm not saying there's not a miracle of the blood here. There may very well be a genuine miracle of the blood, but the participation of the living in these intense ceremonies could definitely be a component in the continuation of this miracle. There's also... Uh, miracles associated with the the marble block upon which he was beheaded, uh, which is, I guess, in the possession of a Capuchin monastery. 
tell, tell me about what happens with this marble block. Is that, uh, um, is that the one? Uh, he, he was beheaded on it. It turns red or something? Uh, I believe so, that um, it's supposed to mimic the blood stains, and uh, this is uh, another characteristic of um, saint relics is, uh, you know, uh, the appearance of um, blood or liquid uh, on things, um, or, you know, some sort of change in constitution or color um, that are associated with also um, usually around feast days or celebrations, anniversaries of death, you know, things like that. And uh, this also is taken as an indication of the holiness of, of the individual. All right, Rosemary, we will take a time out when we come back. I want to talk about um, by location, and uh, that's been attributed to uh, a number of saints, one in particular. And we'll also talk about St. Dominic, founder of the Order of Preachers, known as the Dominicans. Back with more of our conversation with Rosemary Ellen Guiley as we discuss saints and miracles right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Her website, visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com. Check out her bookstore page, uh, and there you will find a beautiful hardcover edition of the Encyclopedia of Saints, and uh, this thing goes for about $80 on Amazon, and uh, you can pick it up on her website for a mere $40. Wonderful Christmas present. All right, now, I, um, I love stories about bilocation, and there is one saint uh, who is, um, I guess that is perhaps the most remarkable gift that is attributed to him, and that is Padre Pio. Uh, talk to me about Padre Pio and bilocation. Definitely uh, one of the most popular saints of modern times, and he too uh, suffered because of his cult of personality, uh, where he was uh, really kind of squelched by his superiors um, who tried to dampen his popularity. Um, but he's the best known of the bilocators, and he also is famous for his stigmata and, um, you know, the wounds of Christ. And uh, he, he had these wounds on his hands and feet that bled all the time. Um, he was a Capuchin, and um, uh, another saint uh, who suffered from poor health most of his life. And I was struck by that over and over again, reading the lives of the saints, uh, how many of them were uh, sickly from a very young age. And that may have been a factor that propelled them toward a spiritual life, because they were literally uh, looking for healing themselves. But uh, Padre Pio was um, um, a very devout man. He probably had uh, an I would say from a paranormal perspective, natural psychic ability that was enhanced uh, by his spiritual practice. And uh, many of the gifts of the saints that determine whether or not they can be beatified and canonized uh, are paranormal gifts, like a mystical knowledge, which uh, would be another way of describing clairvoyance, uh, being able uh, to heal, uh, having the capacity uh, you know, to heal through literally like an energy healing, um, and uh, quite a few of them were bilocators. Um, Padre Pio began to experience wounds in 1910. Uh, these wounds opened up on his hands, and then in 1918 he had a 
mystical experience where these stigmata um, occurred. And it was accompanied by a vision in which an angel um, who had this uh, steel blade that spit out fire uh, pierced him, uh, just threw this blade into him. And Padre Pio said for the rest of his life he felt wounded uh, in a very dramatic way, and, and that he was in a kind of a physical and spiritual agony from this. And it was after this that experience, a lot of these other extraordinary abilities opened up. And um, uh, in bilocating, uh, he seemed to be able to do it at will. That, in fact, if he told people that uh, if they needed him to call to him in prayer, and there are many cases uh, documented where people would pray. Uh, they would find themselves in a crisis situation, and they would pray to Padre Pio for help, and he would appear to them, even though physically he was somewhere else. And uh, this is uh, an ability ascribed to the Eastern mystics as well. Uh, you know, um, we have um, uh, remarkable mystics uh, from... Uh, India, for example, who have that ability of bilocation. And uh, there was a very dramatic case in uh, 1905 where um, he bilocated uh, to a dying man. And um, when he was um, at, at his church, and yet he appeared in his habit, the bedside of this dying man. And um, uh, other people, you know, who have been in, in uh, crisis situations have testified that Padre Pio has physically uh, come to them. And uh, he was finally canonized in 2002, uh, beatified in 1999. I, uh, uh, there's a church in New York City that has uh, one of his relics. It's a bloody sock. Uh, which has uh, blood where the uh, stigmata wound uh, appeared on his foot, and uh, it is on display for veneration. Now, when he bled, um, the blood always had this very sweet scent, and this is another thing that is ascribed to the saints, is this uh, this odor of sanctity. It's usually a, a very heavy floral scent, and uh, if, if their bodies are incorrupt, they will often uh, exude this odor of sanctity. And his blood had this uh, sweet scent to it as well. Well, he was so popular that uh, the church actually silenced him and forbade him to write letters or preach. This to me is absolutely astonishing, because you would think that if you had a figure who uh, could you know, rally the faithful and, and inspire people and draw people to the church, you would think you would want that encouraged. But um, here we get into this personality cult uh, aspect again that has always been um, suppressed. Uh, I think Mother Teresa was an exception to that. She was so popular that uh, there was just no suppressing that popularity cult. But uh, anyway, he was... Uh, you know, almost um, sequestered for his popularity. And uh, people, cons he was so popular nonetheless uh, throughout his life that people considered him to be a saint uh, long before the church gave him that uh, official status. There's, a, um, I don't know if we have time here, we're heading into a break, but there's a, an amazing story relating to bilocation and, and Padre Pio. 
uh, during the Second World War, uh, where a uh, an American fighter pilot. Um, well, I guess what happened was he was seen in the air over uh, San Giovanni Rotondo, and this was a town that was under Nazi control. And American bombers were headed there. They were uh, given the task of attacking the city and liberating San Giovanni from the uh, the Nazis. But when they appeared over the city, they were were all ready to unload their munitions. And one of the pilots saw a brown-robed friar appearing before their aircraft. And they tried to drop their, their payload, and, it, and all the, uh, the attempts to release the bombs failed. And it's suggested that this is the way that Padre Pio kept his promise to the citizens, that their town would be spared. And then later on, American, uh, when an American airbase was established at... Uh, uh, Fogia, which is a few miles away, one of the pilots of this incident visited the friary and found, to his surprise, the little friar he had seen in the air that day over San Giovanni was, in fact, uh, Padre Pio. All right, we'll get back to our discussion of the saints with the one and only Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and uh, we'll discuss a very famous Dominican. Stay with us. All right, welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Let's talk about Dominic, founder of the Order of Preachers, or otherwise known as the Dominicans. St. Dominic was uh, a very powerful uh, person, even in his day. He lived in uh, the late 12th to early 13th century, and um, he founded the Order, which then uh, became instrumental in um, pursuing Inquisition uh, throughout uh, Europe, uh, the Dominicans were formed um, uh, most of the a body of inquisitors, uh, and um, Dominic uh, has had numerous miracles attributed to him, and one of them raising the dead. Now there are, are a number of saints who um, have been credited with raising the dead, and uh, most of these uh, raising the dead miracles happened centuries ago, and very little detail is available in terms of exactly how they did it. Was a person really dead? Uh, we must wonder in some cases uh, whether or not uh, the, the person was actually dead or perhaps just in a very deep coma or perhaps um, e- even experiencing a near-death experience. But at any rate, um, he's, that's one of his big miracles is that uh, he could use um, holy water and prayer to raise the dead. And his most famous case was a cardinal's nephew who was thrown from a horse and very badly mangled and was pronounced dead. And he is said to have brought that uh, that man back to life. He could also multiply food. Many of the saints imitated Jesus and some of the things they could do. Uh, he multiplied food like Jesus did. Uh, and he did it through prayer. And um, he also had what's called the, the gift of miraculous transport. And that's not quite the same as bilocation. It's uh, the ability to suddenly be in a distant location. Uh, we would call it teleportation uh, in paranormal terms. And uh, these are abilities that here again are ascribed to the Eastern yogis and adepts. So uh, highly spiritualized people um, in a variety of religions all demonstrate the same extraordinary capabilities. And 
uh, one of the things I think we sh- we should keep in mind about the saints is that uh, it's these things are not limited to just mi- um, minority of extraordinary people. They are available to all human beings. Uh, if we spiritualize our consciousness, um, we can uh, achieve the same uh, level of extraordinary uh, feats. We can um, have miraculous powers and uh, we can do extraordinary things. The, the saints were very focused. They led intense spiritual lives. We don't have to withdraw into monasteries and and be as extreme, perhaps, but we can spiritualize our consciousness to uh, perhaps experience some of those things. Um, and so the saints do serve in, in that sort of inspiration. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating... Dominic died in Bologna... Uh, Italy, and I did go to his church there uh, and his um, his tomb, and that church is so full of relics; it is stuffed to the brim with relics of of uh, saint body parts and bones and uh, incorrupt bodies. Uh, and uh, I took a tour of the church and then uh, interviewed the uh, the priest who led the church, and he said, "You want to see relics? I'll show you relics." And he takes me into the attics uh, in the, in, uh, of this huge church where they've got so many relics, they don't even have space to put them out. Oh, my gosh. It was absolutely flabbergasting. What did um, you see up there? <laughs> the head of John the Baptist? Well, what did you find? <laughs> but um, I, I took a trip to Italy some years ago, and it was kind of a pilgrimage for me. Um, I was able to visit many different cities, uh, mostly in central and northern Italy, and I wanted to see the famous places of the saints. I wanted to see their relics, uh, their incorrupt bodies, uh, and to be in, in the places uh, where they carried on their, their lives and their work. And um, um, also in Bologna, I, I saw the incorrupt body of uh, Catherine of Bologna, and uh, her... Uh, her incorrupt body is uh, sitting in a reliquary, um, and she's dressed in her habit with uh, an open Bible on her lap and a rosary, and she looks like she's in prayer. She's entirely black now. Her skin has been blackened by uh, candle smoke over the centuries, but she looks so lifelike. Um, and this is in a tiny little chapel that you have to know where it is. It's not advertised, and it took me a great deal of effort to find this place. And um, there's a tiny little room where about six people are allowed in at a time to sit and pray and contemplate. And uh, she's incredibly lifelike. And, and when did she when did she die? The body of Catherine of Genoa as well, um, and uh, the preserved tongue of Anthony of Padua, uh, and... Um, the uh, wrist bone of Therese of Lisieux that was in France. Um, just an amazing pilgrimage. The, in, the incorrupt, uh, incorrupted uh, body of the saint that you just mentioned, when did she pass away? How, uh, how long ago? Um, which Catherine? Um, the, Catherine one you, the one you said her body has been blackened by a candle oh, smoke. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. Uh, let me think here. She was lived in the 1400s. Um, so we're talking 600 years yeah, ago. Yeah, about yeah, about 
600 years ago, uh, 1463, died in 1463, and uh, canonized in 1712. The process is a little shorter today. In earlier times, it often took quite a while for uh, the Church to do a thorough uh, study of the sanctity of someone's life and their acts and uh, whether or not miracles could be uh, proved to them, um, especially posthumously. The miracle has to be demonstrated posthumously for them to be uh, canonized. So you know, it took her several uh, hundred years to be canonized. But uh, yes, for hundreds of years, um, her body has been remarkably preserved. And um, now Catherine of Genoa, she lived at about the same time. She died a little bit later in the early 1500s. And her body is, um, it is rather desiccated. It's it's, um, very dried out uh, compared to Catherine of of, uh, Bologna. I had never seen anything like that. It was astonishing. But uh, even so, uh, even the other uh, incorrupt saints that um, have had remarkably little uh, deterioration of the body, it's still incredible. And it is considered to be uh, a sign of, of their sanctity. Um, some of these saints, if, if a saint was uh, led an exemplary life and was... Uh, uh, remarkable during their lifetime, sometimes their body would be exhumed uh, after they were buried to uh, see um, if if there were signs of, of incorruption. And um, there, um, some saints were literally dismembered uh, for their relics, and the relics were shipped around all over the world uh, for veneration by the faithful. Francis of Xavier was. Uh, practically dismembered that way when uh, various bones and in, in a way it's kind of of a macabre practice. I'll say, <laughs> but um, uh, millions of people will turn out uh, to see the relics of of a saint. When uh, the wrist bone of Therese of Lisieux came to America s- some years ago, uh, I mean throngs of people turned out to see uh, see the relic. What about uh, Joseph of Copertino? This is uh, a saint best known for his uh, levitation. Yes, and he is uh, probably unique in the annals of levitation. Uh, Here again, there are other saints who are ascribed this ability to float, rise up into the air and float. But if the stories about him are true, uh, there's been nothing like him before or since in this ability. And, uh, of course, we've, we've had transcendental meditation. People talk about being able to levitate and even film showing that, and it's just kind of a, a short lifting up uh, through intense meditation, um, and then they come back down. But according to reports, Joseph, Joseph Copertino could stay in the air for hours. Now, he lived in the 17th century, and he was a Franciscan, uh, and uh, the story to him uh, has some uh, Jesus-like uh, characteristics to it. His father was a carpenter um, and died before he was born. His mother was so poor that um, she lost her home. She had to give birth to him in a stable. He was uh, poor. He was ridiculed when he was a kid. And he was very unusual when he was young because he seemed to lapse into trance states a lot. And this seemed to be very instrumental in his uh, later levitation. 
So uh, after he uh, took his orders, um, his religious life was comprised of a lot of mystical experiences and intense visions. It was like he was in an altered state almost all the time. And he would get swept up into these ecstatic uh, states of consciousness where he would levitate. And um, testimonies about him uh, rising up into the air and even flying around, uh, and that he could remain in the air a long time. This wasn't just an up and down, that he could hover in the air. Uh, he could do it outside as well as inside. And um, he even gave a demonstration to this, uh, to the Pope, who was Urban VIII. And uh, when he visited the Pope, um, he rose spontaneously into the air after kissing the Pope's feet. Well, uh, this alarmed a lot of his superiors. Here again, this refrain of extraordinary abilities uh, alarming the superiors, and what are we going to do about it? He was so disruptive to his fellow monks that he was confined. Uh, they just couldn't take it, I guess, him flying around. Uh, and uh, he was confined to a room for, for uh, quite some time. Um, he also exuded this odor of sanctity. Um, now, how do we explain someone like Joseph of Copertino? Did he really levitate? Because we can't find other examples uh, of extraordinary spiritual figures in history who had this ability to do it with the frequency and the, uh, the length of time that he was capable of doing. So... Uh, we can't just write all of these testimonies off as, as fabrication, but how do we document and validate it? There's, there's um, really, uh, no one's come up with, with anything um, that could explain conclusively how he was able to do this, and in fact, that he did do this. We have nobody in modern times being able to duplicate this. Well, uh, well maybe they're out there, and uh, again, it's... Um... It's perceived as some sort of a threat because of the cult of personality to the church, and maybe we won't learn about them uh, until, again, after they've, uh, after they've passed. Rosemary, always fascinating. And again, people can find out all about the saints in your encyclopedia available at visionaryliving.com. Thank you so much for this, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you too, Richard. All right, my thanks to uh, Ian Robertson. And uh, Albert Finzel back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed. Nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I say in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.